Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as your word is reopened to be taught, to be proclaimed, and to be heard as such, we plead in earnest with you now that such preaching and hearing your word preached would not be in vain for any of us. We pray and trust, Lord, in the Holy Spirit to accompany with his anointing power a divine and holy unction that will work effectually in the hearts of us all today as we hear your word being opened up and expounded in truth. We pray, Lord, that your word will run unencumbered and that it will be glorified in our very midst this day for the sake and the honor of your eternal Son made flesh, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, I do invite you to take the word of God this morning and let's open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As we will consider this morning what I have entitled a heart undivided for God. A heart undivided for God. And this is one of those sermons where I say at the beginning, I will have no friends at the end of this sermon today because there probably will be no survivors. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 1 and read to verse 8. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, authoritative and sufficient word of the living, eternal God. This morning, as we return to our study of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, we are approaching a biblical passage which Martin Lloyd-Jones described as one of the most magnificent, yet most solemnizing and searching statements which can be found anywhere in Scripture. In fact, Lloyd-Jones declared that it is the very essence of the Christian position and of the Christian teaching. Well, this statement which Lloyd-Jones cannot express enough praise about is Matthew chapter 5 in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Within the immediate context of Matthew 5, this declaration of our Lord is one of eight statements he expresses to describe the character and nature of those who belong to him. We know this passage as the aforementioned Beatitudes, which give us snapshots, if you will, that portray the Christian life as a whole. Now, so far, we have considered the first five of these Beatitudes, which have helped us to see that a Christian is not merely someone who has made a decision to follow Christ. In fact, it would not only be superficial to describe a Christian in that way, but worse, it would be dishonest. Because as Jesus teaches us in the Beatitudes, someone who follows him is, first of all, a sinner who has come to see their spiritually impoverished position before God. They have become, by the working of God's grace, what Christ calls poor in spirit. They see themselves for the first time as God sees them. Their righteousness is filthy rags. Their hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. But seeing their spiritually bankrupt condition, Jesus goes on to describe his people as those who mourn. Those who mourn. That is, as they come to the hard reality of what they really are in their sinfulness, they are brokenhearted with godly sorrow. They cry out with King David in Psalm 51 and verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yet, their mourning over sin does not lead them to despair, but repentance. A repentance that Jesus describes in the terms of his followers becoming meek. This is the flowering of a true conversion to Christ, whereby the heart of the believing sinner is pliant. It is teachable and yielding to God's will and design for his life. Out of humility and brokenness in response to their sin, they are finished with all they are and given themselves completely over to God. Now, from this heart which bows in meekness to the lordship of Christ, Jesus then describes his followers as a people with an insatiable appetite. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Having renounced a life of sin and self-serving, the new heart of a believer in Christ yearns to live a life that is pleasing to God. A Christian in these terms is someone whose passion is to magnify Christ with a life that conforms to his righteous standard. But where such a life is first put on display to the watching world is in what Jesus called being merciful. Being merciful. And this was our last consideration in the study of the Beatitudes. Having received the mercy of God through salvation in Christ, the Christian himself becomes a merciful person. But it is a mercy unlike anything the world knows because it is a mercy graced in the heart of the believer by God. It is therefore a mercy that is driven and governed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This means that not only will the Christian strive to relieve the physical suffering of his fellow man, but he will go further. He'll go further to relieve the spiritual suffering. He will do those things at great, at great cost to himself to bring the saving gospel of Christ to bear on the lives of sinners. His compassion for his fellow man is a redemptive compassion. It is a gospel mercy. So then based on all that we have seen so far in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 7, it should be clearly understood as to why you cannot define a Christian 
as someone who has merely made a decision for Christ. If we're honest and true to the word of God, then we are not permitted to describe a Christian in such shallow terms. Far more than a decision has taken place in a sinner who is broken with sorrow and humility over their sin yielding their lives in utter submission to God, craving after righteousness, God's righteousness, and striving to show others the same mercy that God has so graciously shown to him. This kind of person is, is not someone who has just walked down the church aisle, who has just simply prayed a mantra prayer. No, this is someone who has been awakened and arrested by the omnipotent grace of God, whereby they have been given a new heart in a new birth by the Spirit of God so that they will see and savor Jesus Christ alone as their only true assurance of salvation. This is what's behind these descriptive terms Christ employs in the Beatitudes because this is a true picture of a true Christian. But at the core and center of what a Christian is by his new nature and what therefore drives him in all his pursuits is the subject of our study this morning as we turn to the sixth beatitude in Matthew 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. From this passage, I want to raise three very simple questions. First, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Second, how do we pursue heart purity? And third, what is the result of being pure in heart? Let's consider each of these in turn. To begin with, what does it mean to be pure in heart? To begin understanding what Jesus means by this term, pure in heart, we need to start off by underscoring what our Lord is very clearly not emphasizing here. First of all, the emphasis of these words is upon the heart, not the head. It is upon the heart, not the head. While our intellect and understanding is very much involved in the work of conversion, yet salvation is not merely an intellectual assent. When God saves a sinner, there is more affected than just his intellect and the things he now knows or understands. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, we must never beware lest we stop at giving only an intellectual assent to the faith or to a given number of propositions. He says, we have to do that, but the terrible danger is that we stop at that. When people have had merely an intellectual interest in these matters, it has oftentimes been a curse to the church. And at this point, I have to ask, is your Christian profession only made up of facts you affirm, even if those facts are true? Matthew 5 and verse 8 warns us against the danger of intellectualism. 
Conversion to Christ is more, it is more than believing the right things. It is not less than that, but my friend, it is more than that. It is more than that. Hence, Jesus places his emphasis here on the heart, not the head. But second of all, notice that our Lord places his emphasis on the heart rather than upon outward, external conduct. Now, this is a most important point when we consider what was the most popular religion among the Jews in the days of our Lord's earthly ministry. The Jewish religious leaders at the time of our Lord's earthly ministry had actually reduced God's mandate for a righteous life into an, to an external code of mechanical rules and regulations. This was especially true for the most powerful force in Judaism at this time known as the Pharisees. These men were the chief managers and promoters of the pervasive legalistic and ritualistic system that dominated Jewish society. Over the centuries, various rabbis had interpreted and reinterpreted the Old Testament scriptures, especially the law, until those interpretations known as the traditions of the elders became more authoritative than scripture itself. The essence of the traditions was a system of do's and don'ts that gradually expanded to cover almost every aspect of Jewish life. So then for the Pharisees and their doctrine of salvation, it was living by a series of man-made rules which centered only on the outward appearance of one's conduct. It was an external religion, not a heart religion. This is why we hear Jesus say later in Matthew chapter 5 that if, listen to this, Matthew 5 and verse 20, if our righteousness, Jesus says, if our righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, then we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? It's because the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was only skin deep. It looked good. It was all clean on the outside. But on the inside, the heart was untouched by the saving grace and power of God. Therefore, to hear Jesus say that only the pure in heart would see God was exposing the soul-damning nature of Pharisaic religion. The life that will see God is not the moralistic life. It is not the life that just cleans the outside of the cup while the inside is full of filth and corruption. The life that will see God is that life where God himself has changed and transformed the heart. And saying this brings us now to consider exactly what it does mean to be pure in heart. Now to do this, I want us to unpack these two terms translated as pure and heart. Let's begin with the word heart. What does our Lord mean by this term? 
We can start by making it very clear that Jesus is not describing here the physical organ that beats inside our chest. No, by employing the word heart, Jesus is referring to what is the very center of our personality. Our, our heart in biblical terms is describing who we are at the very core of our being, in our mind, will, emotions. The heart is who we are in total. This is why, for instance, Proverbs 4.23 warns us to keep our hearts with all vigilance, for from it, that is from the heart, flow the springs of life. What the scripture is telling us here is that everything about us issues forth from the heart. Hence, we must pay close attention to the thoughts, the affections, the direction of our hearts. In fact, on one of many occasions, when our Lord Jesus was facing the external religion of the Pharisees, Jesus reminded his own disciples that man's greatest problem is not what goes in him, but what comes out of his heart. In Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, Listen to the recorded words of Jesus Christ on this matter. Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, beloved, let's think very carefully about what Jesus is teaching here. The spring or source of sin is not the environment. That's not the problem. It is the heart of man. The heart of man. Man at the core of his being is sinful. He is sinful. This means that in our fallen natural state, in our condition at birth, the scripture makes it very clear in Psalms 51 and 58 that there is a natural bent and drive and inclination towards sin. In short, what makes us sinners is a sinful heart. It is for this reason that when God saves us, when he saves us according to Ezekiel 36, 26, God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new heart. And we must have a new heart because our sinful heart, the scripture tells us, is desperately wicked. This means that left to ourselves in our natural state, we are beyond cure. In fact, that's what the very terminology in Jeremiah 17.9 is referring to regarding desperately wicked. That term desperately wicked means literally beyond cure. So what does this mean practically then? It means this. No self-help program is going to make us better. No New Year's resolutions are going to improve our nature. The heart of man is incurable. It is incurable. Hence, in the work of salvation, what must happen? We must be born again with a new heart. 
That is, God must transform who we are at the very core of our being if we're going to be acceptable to him. But the good news of the gospel is that this is exactly what God does. This is what the Lord does. He gives us a new heart. He makes us what 2 Corinthians 5.17 calls a new creation. And it is this kind of person whom Jesus is describing here in Matthew 5 and verse 8. Now, making this clarification, let's seek to underscore the meaning of the next term, which is the word translated pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. This word pure comes from a Greek term where the root meaning is to make pure by cleansing from dirt, filth, contamination. In Greek culture, this word was often used of metals that had been refined until all impurities were removed, leaving only the pure metal. In this sense, therefore, purity carries the ideas of being unmixed or unalloyed with other things. So then, when this word is applied to the heart, as it is here in Matthew 5 and verse 8, it is referring, now listen closely to this, it is referring to a single-mindedness of undivided devotion and consecration. It is to will one thing, and in this context, that one thing is uncompromising obedience to Christ. It is the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 14, declaring that whatever things were gained to him, he now counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, he counted everything in his life as loss in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. Thus, his one greatest aim and pursuit in life was Christ. Christ. To know him, to be found in him, to fellowship in his sufferings, to experience the power of his resurrection. Paul declared that this was the one thing he did. The one thing. Now, of course, we know that Paul's life consisted of many other things. But what we must understand is that for Paul as a Christian, everything else in his life derived its place and its significance from this central spinal cord to which everything else was attached. Paul would let nothing stand in the way of his devotion to Christ. Everything in his life took a back seat to his love and obedience to Christ. This is the essence of being pure in heart. So then as a Christian... Our love for Christ must reign and rule and govern everything in our life. Serving Jesus as the Lord and Master of our life must take center stage and be therefore the reference point which all matters of life answer to. This means, for example, that while we love our families, our natural families, while we love our families, we love Jesus more. We love him more. Our families, no matter how dear they may be to our hearts, 
will not be allowed to rule our hearts. Jesus Christ is Lord, not our families. And if you're wondering, Jesus took, a spe- he took that as a very specific issue to address. In Luke 14, in Matthew chapter 10. Indeed, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says it as plain as it can be said. If you love mother and father more than me, you're not worthy of me. You love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. What is he saying? You have more love for them than you do for me? You have no part with me. You're not united with me. You're not one of mine. Those are hard words. Really hard. And I didn't say them. Jesus did. But in addition to this, to be pure in heart as a believer in Christ means to be single-mindedly devoted to Christ with friendships, in our work, in school, with our money, our hobbies, with entertainment, and with our time. Again, everything that makes our life in this world what it is comes under the rule and reign of Christ because our love for him is what drives our deepest desires as his people. Beloved, this is authentic Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian. However, while we remain in this fallen world, living in fallen bodies, it must be clarified and We'll all be wiping the sweat from our brow when I say this. It must be clarified that the single-minded, Christ-centered devotion of a Christian will not always reach its mark. In other words, as the scripture makes very clear, despite how strong our desire is to to live for Christ, yet that desire that desire can be and will be frustrated and thwarted by the ever-constant downdrag of indwelling sin. Just reference Romans 7, Galatians 5. Now, that kind of reality, that that kind of inward conflict that every Christian has, that does not lessen the sincere desire of every true Christian, which is to please Christ above all. That doesn't lessen your desire, but it does put us all on notice that we cannot be careless. We cannot be thoughtless, apathetic, or indifferent to how we walk before God with Christ every day. For though our Lord describes His people here in the text as pure in heart, Yet this heart purity must be nurtured if we're to grow in a greater single-minded passion for Christ. This does not just happen automatic. 
So what then does it mean to be pure in heart? It is letting nothing in our lives overturn, overrule, and therefore rival with victory the deepest desire of our new hearts as believers, which is to love, obey, and glorify God above all things. As I said earlier, everything takes a back seat to what Jesus Christ has willed and purposed for our lives. Everything takes a back seat. This is being pure in heart. But with the meaning of this term, let's now consider the next major question in our study, which gets us to the more practical aspect of it. How do we pursue heart purity? How do we pursue heart purity? How do we grow and mature as the pure in heart? How do we, how do we come to that place of sanctification like Paul the Apostle where, where we can say, as he says in Philippians 3 and verse 7, I have counted all things as loss for the sake of Christ. How do you get there? How do you grow there? I will offer six ways in which we can grow in greater singleness of passion towards Christ. First, first we need to hum, hum, humbly realize that apart from Christ, left to ourselves, we have neither the desire nor the ability to pursue Christ with a single passion. To desire God, to love Christ, is a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. We are not born with this in our natural birth, which is why we must be born again. But even after the new birth, we are as dependent on Christ to renew our affections and strengthen our desire for him as supreme. The point is to be pure in heart and to pursue, and to pursue heart purity is all a work of God's grace in our lives. Second, we must have a daily intake of God's word. We must have a daily intake of God's word. By the word of God, we are given a single-minded vision and passion for God. God's word gives us definition and description as to who the pure in heart are and how the pure in heart will live. But in addition to this, the word of God renews our thinking to be more mindful of what pleases Christ and what reshapes our affections to grow more in love with Christ as we would die daily to those remaining affections for sin. Third, we must pray that God will grow us in greater purity of heart. This was King David's own prayer. In Psalm 86 and verse 11, how many, how many of you are familiar with this petition of David's? Listen to this, Psalm 86, verse 11. David prays, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And then listen to this, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. What does that mean? The verb translated here as unite literally means to join together. To join together. 
David is petitioning the Lord to take his heart, which is so fragmented and divided with so many things, things that draw him away from trusting and obeying God fully, which is what he means by the phrase, to fear your name. And David is asking the Lord to unite his heart with all its affections and desires to fear God with a singleness of passion and purpose. And like David, this should be our prayer also. This should be our prayer also. While it is true that our deepest desire and delight is to trust, obey, and to glorify God, yet due to remaining sin, combined with all the daily pressures we face in marriage, family, work, school, etc., our heart affections, our thoughts, our intentions can become divided very quickly. So we need to pray. Unite my heart, Lord, to fear your name. Grow me in greater purity of heart. Fourth, we must not allow the love of this fallen world to shape us into its mold. We must not allow the love of this fallen world to shape us into its mold. Now this one's tough. This is actually the call and mandate of Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. 1 John, 1 John 2.15 commands us not to, not to love this world nor the things in it. That is the things which make up the values and pursuits of this fallen world which are in direct opposition to God. We're not to love those things. And it is therefore here, as Christians, we must be wise and prudent by what we watch and read and listen to and even by the company we keep. The pure in heart, as Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 says of the truly godly person, the pure in heart will not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. This means that in our pursuit for greater heart purity, we will guard ourselves from the, from the subtle, insidious snares of worldliness. Worldliness. Sadly, that's a term you don't hear often. You really don't. What is it? What does it mean? What is worldliness? Worldliness is to be man-centered in our thinking, elevating man's opinion above God's word, and pursuing those things which fallen man worships in place of God, thereby opposing God. Hence, the, the nurture for heart purity in the Christian will be a deliberate, a deliberate nonconformity to what this sinful world values and prizes and praises in its rebellion against God. 
Fifth, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we must strive to put to death those sins which remain in our lives. This is the work of mortification, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 13. And by this work, through the divine agency of the Spirit, we seek to subdue and weaken and destroy every vestige of remaining sin that is always striving to usurp our love and devotion to Christ. This means, therefore, that that we must be constant in prayer, staying in the Word, and making no opportunity for the flesh whereby it can gratify its evil cravings. And as you've heard me say this before, in the multiple, multiple times that I have taught and I have preached on the spiritual discipline of mortification, until we reach glory, until we reach eternal glory with Christ, on this side till the day we die, you get no break, you get no vacation, you get no holiday from this work. You don't. You can't, there's not a single day that's going to go by in your earthly pilgrimage, dear Christian, where you can get up one day and say, you know, I just don't feel like mortifying sin today. I think I'll take a break. Your flesh will love to hear that. As will the world, as will the devil. You don't get a break. It's war to death. It's war to the day you die. War. But the good thing is, the encouraging thing is, you're not fighting this battle all on your own. Because Romans 8.13 says, it's by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So we have supernatural power to enable us to weaken, subdue, and mortify all remaining sin. So you're not on your own. It's, it's not just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go at it, do the best you can. You know, we're over here on the sideline rooting for you, cheering for you. No, no. It's by the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you're not mortifying any sin. You're not. So with his power, we do this. And I say that as a strong footnote of encouragement. Lastly, in our pursuit of heart purity, we must fix our thoughts and affections on the glory of Christ the power of his saving work, and those things he, the Lord Jesus, loves. If everything in our lives is to take a back seat to our love and obedience to Jesus Christ, then we must intentionally fix our thoughts and affections on Christ. We must think much of his glory we must think much of his saving work in our behalf. We, if, if, if we're to grow in a single 
passion, a singleness of passion for him. Moreover, we must also be mindful of what Christ loves. Be mindful of what he loves. Because, friend, if you say you love Jesus, then here's the test. Do you love what he loves? Do you love what he loves? I know plenty of people who profess to love Christ, but they hate the church. Well, the Bible has a word for them. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. That's a, that, that's a pretended love. That's fake. That is fake. Ephesians 5.25 says that Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Don't dare claim that you love him if you don't love his bride. Which, as a matter of fact, you're claiming to be part of. A lot of contradictions there. For these people who say, I love Jesus, but I ain't got nothing to do with the church. Don't like church. Well, 1 John 3.14 says, you're not born again. So, you and your fake love are going to hell. You need to repent. You need to repent and turn to Christ. But, moving on here. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Now, write this down. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 calls us to this pursuit of Christ by exhorting us to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The force of this verb, look, urges us to take more than a mere glance at Christ. The verb is a present tense verb. This means that for a Christian, Jesus Christ is always in the center of our view. He's always in the center of our view. But our view of Christ must be clear and not distorted. It must be truthful and not false. And this can only come by beholding Christ as he is revealed in the word of God. It is only in the scriptures, the scriptures, where we see the majesty and the beauty of who Christ is. And the sufficiency of what he's done to save his people. Only in the word of God do we see this. However, to be captivated by the revelation of Christ from God's holy word will take more than just a casual reading of the Bible. It takes musing and pondering and praying over what God reveals to us in his word concerning his beloved son. This means that we are searching the scriptures to see Christ in both the Old and New Testaments. And the benefit of seeing more of Jesus as he's revealed in scripture will be the increase of our love and devotion to him. My favorite English Puritan, John Owen, once spoke to this very matter Indeed, it was in the last book that he ever wrote before his death in 1683. The book he entitled, The Glory of Christ. 
And Owen said this in one portion of that great book. He said, only a sight of his glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. The hearts of believers are like a magnetized needle which cannot rest until it is pointing north. So also a believer magnetized by the love of Christ will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds his glory. On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. I've often thought when I've read that book, this is what was uppermost on that great Puritan's heart before he died. The glory of Christ. That's all he wanted to see. Beloved, that should be all that any of us want to see as Christians. More of his glory. So, from a practical standpoint then, how are we to pursue a greater heart purity? How do we grow and mature as the pure in heart? Okay, let's review. Very briefly. First, By humbly realizing that without Christ we can do nothing. Number two, by a daily intake of God's word. Three, by praying for an increased measure of heart purity. Four, by not allowing the love of this fallen world to shape us into its mold. Fifth, by mortifying the remaining sin in our lives through the the Spirit's power. And finally, by fixing our thoughts and affections on the glory of Christ, his saving work in those things which he loves. By applying these biblical mandates and precepts to our lives, we will grow in our sanctification and thereby become a people of God who are more and more pure in heart. But on this point... I need to stress one last important principle which the word of God is so clear about. Our pursuit for growth in heart purity is not an individual pursuit. It is not an individual pursuit. It is a community pursuit. A community pursuit. What does that mean? It is a pursuit that works in concert and communion with the church as a whole. We are not meant by God, we are not meant to make this pursuit by ourselves. We're meant to make this pursuit together as the church of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures are clear. Galatians 6, 2, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 10. All those references speak to this. 
And our final consideration of Matthew 5.8, let's raise this question. What is the result? What is the result of being pure in heart? Reading again our text, blessed are the pure in heart. And now look at this. Jesus says, for they shall see God. For they shall see God. With a singleness of devotion, trust, and obedience toward God, Jesus promises, he, listen, he promises all his people that they shall see God. Now, now, what does that mean? Honestly, what does that mean? Well, we need to understand this promise as partly fulfilled here, partly while waiting what we, what we could call the consummation in the future. On the one hand, a Christian does see God now in the sense, listen carefully, in the sense that he beholds God's glory in creation. He beholds God's glory in the providence of God in history. And he even has the the felt sense of God's presence and power in his own life. In each of these ways, a Christian sees God. And though the vision is not perfect, yet it is a true vision nonetheless. And the word of God bears witness to that, to that vision. But as I've just noted, this promise to see God has a future fulfillment awaiting it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12 that though we see now as in a mirror dimly, that is seeing God is glory in our future perfection, though we, though we see now in a mirror dimly, yet there is, a, there is a day coming when Paul says we shall see face to face. Face to face. The Apostle John speaks to this very same issue. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, when he tells us that though it has not yet appeared what we shall be, that is what we believers shall be in our future glory, it has not yet appeared what we shall be when we enter eternal glory, yet we do know, we do know that when, that when Christ appears, that is at his second coming, when he appears, we will be like him. And how do we know that we'll be like him? Because John says, we will see Jesus as he is. With your physical eyes, with your physical eyes, you will see the physical, risen, exalted Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones commented on this future vision every Christian will have of God when he mused. This is surely the most amazing thing that has ever been said to man, that you and I, such as we are, pressed with all the problems and troubles of this modern world, are going to see God face to face. If we but grasped this, it would revolutionize our lives. You and I are meant for the audience chamber of God. You and I are being prepared to enter into the presence of the King of Kings. Do you believe it? 
Do you know it is true of you? Do you realize that a day is coming when you, you are going to see the blessed God face to face? Not as in a mirror dimly, but face to face? Surely the moment we grasp this, everything else pales into insignificance. You and I are going to enjoy God and to spend our eternity in his glorious and eternal presence. The blessedness is inconceivable beyond our imagination and we are destined for that. We're destined for that. Talk about better things coming. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, better things are coming. They're coming. So, so here is the Christian. Here is the Christian. Someone who is pure in heart with a divine promise that he shall see God. In light of this beatitude, I have to ask this searching question. Does this describe you? Does this describe you? Are you pure in heart? Is it your supreme desire and ambition to please and glorify God? Can, can you say that, that you love Jesus Christ? Can you honestly say that? That you delight in who he is as God incarnate, Savior, Lord, that you rejoice to be identified with him no matter the cost. And then your deepest desire is to obey all that he commands you to do. Does this describe the condition of your heart? Does your heart have this kind of single-mindedness about it? Can we say with Paul the Apostle in Galatians 2 in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the Life that I now live in this mortal body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? Or can we affirm Philippians 3 and verse 8? I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do we, do we read and hear such words like this from a distance, disconnected, detached, unfeeling? Or, beloved, do our hearts resonate with the same joy and passion for Christ? Even if, listen, even if our own experience may not measure up in fullness to what Paul expressed was true of him as a Christian, yet if we are true believers in Christ, then our hearts will yearn and crave for such a testimony to become more and more our own. So are you pure in heart? And then to further test you on this question, what is your vision of God? What is your vision of God? How clearly do you see the Lord? How closely fixed is your gaze on Christ? 
Writing once to fellow Christians, Sinclair Ferguson lamented, when we hold this world and its contents too near, we no longer see Christ in his glory so clearly. The value of this world grows out of proportion. Hmm. Well, that calls for a question, doesn't it? Has this happened to any of us? Has this happened to any of us? Has the value of this world grown out of proportion in your life? During college football season, it does. Guilty as charged too. Has our love and devotion for Christ taken the back seat to other things? That's the most searching question. Have you got Jesus in the back seat? Is that where he is? Beloved, if that's true, and be honest with yourself, sitting here today, be honest with yourself and God. If you've got Christ in the back seat, then you need to repent. You need to repent. Let me tell you what sin that is. That's the sin of idolatry. That's what sin that is. The sin of idolatry. What is that? It's prizing something more than God. Praising something more than Him. That's living for something other than living for Him. And yet we know that the very first commandment in the moral law is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And some bozo says, well, that's just Old Testament. Oh, well, here, let me show you the New Testament, shall I? The Apostle John, 1 John chapter 5, the very last verse of his first epistle, he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. That is a repeated motif in the entire Bible. Why? Well, to quote John Calvin, his very famous quote, our hearts are idol-producing factories. Idol-producing factories. Beloved, if this is our guilt, then by God's grace, we need to flee from this sin and re-embrace Christ with a renewed love, trust, and obedience that conquers all other rivals. Because I can assure you of this, our God is a jealous God, and he will have no rivals with other gods. He will have none. He's a jealous God. And if you're one of his children, if you truly belong to him, and yet you are guilty of idolatry, look out. The chastisement's coming. God has a special woodshed for his children who are guilty of idolatry. Because whatever it is that you're worshiping, 
he will take it away. He'll take it away. And listen, he loves you that much to do that. He loves you that much to do that. So let the word of God this morning search you. Let it discover the truth of what is there. Though every Christian is pure in heart, okay, if you're a Christian, you are pure in heart. This is who you are. Yet we know that there is not a, we know that this is not a purity that has reached perfection. It's not a purity that has reached perfection. So we must be diligent to apply all that God has provided to inflame our passion for him and the claim of his glory ruling every part of our life. If you want to know if you're progressing in sanctification, then what I just said, that's what you should see. That's progressing in sanctification. And yes, you're going to stand out more and more to this dark, fallen, sinful world. In fact, when I was going over, over this sermon this morning and I got there to the end, I had a flashback of a, a woman I used to pastor many years ago. Uh, she didn't say this to me, she said this to my wife, but as as I was teaching the church more and more of the whole counsel of God and, and they were becoming, you know, more exposed to the reformed faith. And, but, but more than that, they were, they were, they were starting to see what the word of God actually does demand and call for in our lives living for Christ. And, and this lady said to my wife, she said, aren't we weird enough? Yes, and you're going to be weirder. As salt of the earth and light of the world, we're going to stick out. And we're supposed to. We're supposed to stick out. Because our relevance, the relevance of the church to this world, it's not that we're just like you guys. No, that's not relevant. That's sin. No, our relevance is our difference. That's what makes us relevant. We are so different. We are so weird. But it's a godly weirdness. It's a godly oddity. It's the kind of godliness that, that any sensible Unbelievers should say, what is so different about them? What, what, what makes the difference? What makes the difference? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for times like this when your word does indeed search us deeply. And 
we, we find no place, Lord, to hide because the light pierces every dark corner of our souls. But Father, we thank you for times like this. We thank you, Lord, for what your grace in Christ has made us as a new creation with new hearts. But we also thank you, Father, that that with such a new heart, you've given us everything we need in Christ through the Spirit to, to pursue greater heart purity, to grow and mature as believers in Christ, becoming more and more sanctified, more set apart in all our thoughts and words and affections as well as in our deeds. Blessed Father, we ask your forgiveness this morning by the blood and righteousness of Christ Jesus our Lord that for every time we have truly been guilty of idolatry. When we have praised anything in our lives more than you. That we've sought to pursue something greater than you, Lord. Forgive us. But Father, with the forgiveness, we, we trust in you now for the power to repent, the power to flee this sin, to keep ourselves from idols as your word commands. And to imitate the faith of Brother Paul, your servant, your apostle, whom you had brought to such a place of sanctification that by his words and deeds, his life witness to one who had counted everything as lost for the sake and the honor of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And Father, we do pray earnestly today. Get us there. That's where we want to be. That's our earnest heart, our desire, Lord. To keep making such progress in our sanctification that with honesty and with a testimony to back it up, we can say that even we have counted all things loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father, for opening our eyes to so many things today that we needed to see, that have been hard to see. Thank you for the conviction. Thank you for the work of the Spirit by the Word of God. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.